Well, good morning, and on this Father's Day, uh, welcome to our Leewood campus. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson, and yes, I'm a dad, so it's kind of a fun day for me. Um, but I do want to welcome you all here today, and uh, <clears throat> some of you might have received an email this week uh, from our campus pastor here, Alan Mercer, and uh, we are going to be examining this morning an Old Testament book as we've walked through this year, um, our whole congregation, if you're visiting We've been going from Genesis all the way to the end of the book, the end of the year, and it's called Open Here. We're opening the Bible every day. And uh, this morning we come to an Old Testament book uh, called The Song of Solomon, and uh, we want to encourage you, if you have small children, because of the nature of the topic, uh, there's a wonderful children's ministry at the lower level if you'd like to take them there. There's people free to have them stay, but we want you to know that as well. Well, happy Father's Day. Being a dad is a great thing. Um, I have lots of experiences I can share with you. Uh, but uh, dads have some amazingly awkward moments. And I don't know if you love the Super Bowl. It's one of my favorite things, not just the football, but the commercials. But this year there was a marvelous commercial for a car, the Kia, that captured the awkward moment of being a dad. I'd like you to see that as we begin the message. Dad, where do babies come from? Uh, oh, well, there's a, th- th- there's a planet. It's called Babylandia. That's right, it's filled with babies. Uh Uh-huh, babies of all kinds. And when the time is just right, there's a space launch. All systems go. They wave goodbye, and then they they board these big, shiny rocket ships, right? They shoot off high in the sky, and they fly through space, and then they, they penetrate the atmosphere. And then they're released all over the place. Yeah, Africa, the the Indian Ocean, uh, well, everywhere. After an amazing nine-month journey, they find their mommies and daddies. And that, son, is where babies come from. But Jake said babies are made when mommies and daddies... Hugo, play with us on the bus. Mommies on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. Isn't that fantastic? Well, talking about the birds and the bees can be an awkward thing, for sure. And uh, sometimes the wheels on the bus not only go round and round, sometimes they fall off. Uh, Talking about human sexuality in the church sometimes feels like that. And I want to encourage us, as we enter into this text this morning, that we can talk about it in church. Uh, God doesn't blush, the Bible doesn't blush, and we shouldn't either. And some of you might be thinking, what does the Bible have to say about sex anyway? Uh, Actually, the Bible says quite a bit. It's uh, quite surprising for some of us. Um, In our culture, we hear a lot about sex. Uh, It seems to be everywhere, the conversation. If you uh, move beyond the surface and draw back the bedroom curtains a bit, though, there is a sense that There's just a lot of pain and confusion around this very personal part of our lives. One of the things I see and I hear is the prominent cultural message really simplifies sexuality. That is to sort of place it only in a biological context, that it is sort of like eating a Chipotle burrito, one of my favorites, um, or drinking a glass of water. But this really is a too simplistic view of human sexuality. Because human sexuality, whether we admit it or not, is woven into the deep fabric of our humanness. It is a part of who we are in multiple levels. It shapes our sense of self 
and clearly sets the tone of our moral imagination. So what I want to suggest to us as we enter this topic this morning is we all have a story. Uh, We all have a story that shapes the contours of our mind in how we place human sexuality. We all have a view of it. And the question is, what is the story and that is percolating through our minds, and does that story lead to happiness and human flourishing? What is the story in our minds that shape the contours of our understanding of sex, and does that story lead us to human happiness and human flourishing? Now, we are entering the Song of Solomon this morning. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, in the Old Testament, after the Psalms. In some Bibles, it's called the Song of Songs. So however your Bible translates it, Song of Solomon or Song of Psalms, I'd like you to turn there with me. And let me say right up front, in this kind of pastoral conversation this morning, that this uh, eight-chapter poem, the original uh, text, there are no chapter visions, it's a rather lengthy poem, and it is a Hebrew poem written around 3,000 years ago that is an erotic love poem. That's its genre. It captures, in a very sensuous way, the beauty and delight of sexual intimacy in marriage. But what we need to grasp as we enter into this text is this inspired poem is embedded in a broader story, a biblical story that gives us the fuller picture of God and sex. And what we find from Genesis to Revelation is this truth, that sex is a beautiful gift that points to a beautiful God and a beautiful future that awaits us. So where do we want to go this morning? I'd like to kind of frame our exploration where I'd like to go with you this morning. I hope uh, your hearts and minds will be open as we explore this area that often has lots of pain in our lives. First, what I'd like to do is briefly look at the biblical text and grasp the sense that God designed sex is God's idea. Then secondly, to see how God celebrates sex, particularly here in this erotic love poem, but then also have some time with you to talk about how we all struggle with our sexuality. So we want to look at how God designed sex very briefly, how God celebrates human sexuality, and how we struggle with sexuality. So first of all, God designed sex. What we need to understand from early on in the biblical stories, that God designed it. It was his idea that human sexuality begins with God himself. In other words, as we look at the original creation narrative in the Bible, human sexuality is woven into the fabric, the integral fabric of creation itself. It is beautiful and integral. And the Bible tells us that God designed sex as the master architect with three building blocks in mind. These building blocks set the trajectory of human sexuality all the way through the Bible and across culture. First, we will see it is a heterosexual design. Secondly, it is a covenantal design. And thirdly, it's an intimate design. So what we see in the foundation of God's original design for human sexuality, it is heterosexuality in its design. It is covenantal in its design, and it's intimate in its design. If you want to scoop back, you have your Bible open. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. Here we enter into the original creation story. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
What I want you to notice right away is the biblical writer anchors human sexuality in a heterosexual design. The text of Genesis emphasizes the complementarity and procreative aspect of male and femaleness as co-image bearers of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So sex between a man and a woman reflect the pleasure and delight and self-giving love of the Trinity. That's its design template. But notice also that sex has a covenantal design to it. Notice chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis, if you're following along. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here we see human sexuality is embedded in and integral to the marriage covenant. A male and female becoming one in a long-standing, one flesh, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental union. In other words, sex, in the biblical context, is a sign of a covenant established with permanency. Now, notice also in chapter, 20, or chapter 2, verse 25, that God's design is not only a heterosexual design, it is not only a covenantal design, it is one that is an intimate design. Notice verse 25 of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the Genesis writer very tastefully but clearly describes here not just physical nudity, but personhood transparency of body, soul, and spirit that is beautiful and wonderful and worshipful. It is not dirty. It's not obligatory. The picture is one of extraordinary beauty and worship. Now, what we need to understand, whether we've read the Bible or not, or not in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the original creation story, before sin and destruction enters the world in chapter 3, we need to understand how the original creation story before sin enters the world in our lives, how it ends. The grand poetic crescendo of Genesis 1 and 2, the grand crescendo of the creation story is what? It is the most awesome picture of sexual intimacy in marriage. Do we realize that we thought how God ends his creation story in perfect, pristine beauty and wholeness? It ends with the grand crescendo note of a man and woman in marriage covenant enjoying sexual intimacy. That's how it ends. That's amazing. So it's not surprising to us when we come to the Song of Solomon, if we understand the context of why in the canon, in the Old Testament, why eight chapters would be devoted to the beauty of marital love and sexual intimacy between a bride and a groom. So the Song of Solomon picks up where Genesis 1 and 2 left off, and it celebrates the wonder of human sexuality in marriage. So as we enter into the Song of Solomon, let me clarify what a beautiful celebration it is. Let me clarify a little bit about this Hebrew text. First of all, as Randy mentioned, it is poetry. And poetry, its genre or scaffolding or structure is important to understand that we not only look at it, we look through it. We not only read it, it reads us. It opens the door to our imagination. It points us to the deepest longings of the human heart. It speaks to us in ways that narrative words cannot do. As writer C.S. Lewis reminded us, we mentioned last week through Ecclesiastes, that this kind of writing woos us with the scent of a flower we have not yet found. It tickles our ears with the echo of a tune we have not yet heard. Poetry opens the door to our deepest heart's longings. But Hebrew poetry also 
creates some of the greatest interpretive challenges. Let me be very transparent as an interpreter of the text. There are many unique Hebrew words in this text. If you want to flunk in seminary Hebrew, go to Song of Solomon. It's the hardest Hebrew text to translate because there's at least 50 words that are never used anywhere else that we know of. And how we interpret words are based on usage. So the translation of the text is very difficult. And if you read the Song of Songs in different uh, translations, you'll see different translations. We are also not sure who's speaking when. The bride and groom are there. They're talking back and forth, but we don't know exactly. It's also written in a cultural location and context that is way far from us. So the more you read it, you go, you read it. You ever read the Song of Songs? If you haven't, I wish you would. And listen to it and open here. You go, huh? Right? You got that moment? I do know. What is that? Because it's so far from our cultural context. And there are times we don't get it. But we can get the main threads of the fabric of the tapestry that is woven for us in this poetry. And there are two of them. And the two ideas that jump from the pages in this beautiful erotic love poem is that sex is a beautiful gift. And secondly, sex is a signpost. First, sex is a beautiful gift. Now, if you have a Song of Solomon or Song of Solomon's open, look at chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, the first part of it. Listen to it with your heart. Oh, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. You are truly delightful. As we read and we hear the repetition of beauty and desirability of each other as bride and groom, do you hear it? Now look with me at chapter 4, verse 10. Same theme here in this poem. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils and spice. Most Hebrew scholars see that chapter 4 presses in to the actual wedding night experience of the bride and groom. And notice in the verses how the groom tells his bride, she is without flaw. I love that. She is more beautiful and more desirable than the best wine. Notice the taste and senses. She is more fragrant than the best smell or best spice. Now look with me at chapter 7. The physical and multi-sensory way of God's design for marital intimacy is powerful here. And in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, I want to read all those six verses. I want you just to let them sort of flow through you and listen to them. Notice the refrain of beautiful. Beautiful is one of the main words in the Song of Solomon. And it's physical beauty first in this context. How beautiful is your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is round bowls, a bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshmon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. And your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasure, pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Now, I don't know what you're thinking when you heard that read. But guys, if you are romantically challenged like me, don't read this poem to your bride, okay? There's just a lot of cultural difficulty here, right? I mean, there's something about telling your bride, you know, your rounded thighs. I just wouldn't go there. I mean, take my word. I'm all for being biblical, but don't be stupid. 
Your tower is like a nose, you know, or a tower of a nose in Lebanon. Good grief, right? Or don't say your belly is a heap of wheat. That doesn't work. But for Solomon's bride, it worked because she was in another cultural location. 3,000 years later, though, we can take from this poetry something that does translate. I'm all for writing poetry to your bride, okay? Just don't use that language. Use the similar language. You can take this as a wonderful way, and I encourage you guys to use this, and women too, with your husbands, use this as poetry. But notice the physicality of the body imagery. There's no blushing. Notice the deep desire for one another, and yes, the sensual delight. That sex within marriage is a beautiful gift from God and a beautiful gift to give one another. That's the picture. But we also need to grasp that the Song of Solomon is not just seeing sex as a beautiful gift in marriage. It is pointing to someone that our hearts desire even more than the best marriage partner. We must not miss this. Sex is a beautiful gift indeed. We don't need to blush at that. But if we just see the Song of Solomon in this poetry as just pointing to a marriage bed, we're missing it. Because sex is a signpost to someone else. The winsome Brit G.K. Chesterton, and if you've not read Chesterton, he's marvelous in his mastery of the English language and his wit. And G.K. Chesterton said this, I love this, is every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Where does he get that idea? See, there is a deep longing within each one of us to which sex points. Do you know that throughout biblical history, scholars have seen the Song of Solomon primarily as an allegory or a typology, connecting God's love for his covenant people, Israel, and for Christ and his bride, the church, that's been the primary understanding of this poetry with multiple layers of meaning. You know, one Hebrew scholar, I love this, he does a midrash or a commentary on this text, and he says this, and I think he's right. He says this text, the Song of Solomon, <laughs> yes, the Song of Solomon, is our invitation to the holy of holies of divine Trinitarian love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a dance of exquisite delight. I think he's right. Do you know, if you've read the Bible or you're reading it or you're coming back to church or you're wondering about the Bible, do you know that the Bible is bookended in a metaphor? It's bookended in the metaphor, embedded in history, but it's a metaphor of marriage and the wedding. Genesis 1 and 2 end in a wedding. Scoot all the way down to the end of the Bible. Revelation, the end of the Bible, ends in a wedding. A grand marriage. The crucified and risen Christ is referred to as the Lamb because of his redemptive enterprise. He is now the bridegroom wedded for all eternity to us. His bride, the church. Revelation 9-7 captures this. Let me just read this. Let us rejoice. You see the joy? and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let's remember that Jesus said all of Scripture from Genesis on speaks of him. The Song of Solomon points to Jesus. 
the deepest longings of our heart, it points to our bridegroom and a grand wedding day and an eternity of unimaginable delight. The Song of Solomon is just a foretaste, an appetizer of something grander. We must not miss this. The Apostle Paul saw this as well. In writing to the Ephesians, he describes this beautiful mystery. This mystery of marital love, the joy of human sexuality and marriage, but it is an appetizer, a sampling of what a future marriage to Christ will be. In Ephesians chapter 5, Pastor Tim Keller does a wonderful job in commenting on Paul's words in Ephesians 5. He says this, listen carefully. It, marriage, points to the true marriage that our souls need and the true family our hearts want. No marriage can ultimately give us what we most desire and truly need. Let me say that again. No marriage can ultimately give us what we most desire and truly need because sex, in its original design, is a signpost of what is to come. God designed sex. He celebrates it, but let's talk about how we struggle with it. We all struggle with sexuality. First, we need to recognize our sexual brokenness. In the New Testament story, if, again, if you read the Bible, New Testament, you know there's a story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. She's brought before Jesus. Everybody's ready to stone her, right? And Jesus says, he is without sin casts the first stone. There's no throwing of stones here. Each one of us is sexually broken. The wrinkles of our sexual brokenness can appear different, but the fabric of fallen sinful humanity in all of our lives, yours and mine, are the same. Isn't it interesting that Jesus describes sexual brokenness not just in physical actions, but our fallen mind and what we think? Lust. Jesus said sexual brokenness is not just actions that are immoral. It is thoughts. So sexual brokenness is not just bodily action. It's a lustful state of mind. And all of us, all of us in this room are sexually broken. Our sexual brokenness takes many shapes, of course. Sometimes it's sexual fantasy. Fantasies are deadly things because they deceive us into thinking there's something really there when there's not. Like mirages in the desert of a parched soul, they beckon us. And when we get there, we grab them and they're empty. Fantasies of whatever they are, fertile soil and a fallen heart, your heart and mine. Sometimes it's a glimpse of a, an attractive colleague in an office that sends your mind to places it shouldn't go. Sometimes it's the pages of a romance novel or the alluring picture on a computer screen. screen. As we said last week, Song of Solomon in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, at the end of the day, it's all smoke. Nothing but smoke. Not just fantasy. Sometimes our brokenness is having sexual idols. Remember, idols are good things, often good things, that become ultimate things. They replace God. God counterfeits. Now, fantasies inevitably will disappoint us. Sexual fantasies will. But idols, sexual idols will inevitably enslave us. Through disordered loves and disordered desires, often fueled in our time by pornography, become false intimacy. 
where sexual images and sexual pleasures become addictions that take over our lives and ruin our marriages, our relationships, hurt others, and wreak havoc in our culture. Our sexual brokenness can also be seen in different ways. We defraud others through a modesty of dress, enticing them. Sometimes we use sex to get our way, to withhold sex, or to use sex to manipulate or control others in marriage. See, we are all broken. And we're all broken in this area of our lives. There is no room for stone throwing of anyone here. We need to recognize our sexual brokenness. Secondly, we need to discern cultural distortions. Can I just talk again as transparent as I can about this? God's story of human sexuality is radically different than our culture story, our main narrative. We live in a sex-saturated culture. Sex is not new. Every kind of experimentation is not new in human history, of course. But with technology, it is amplified in our day. Our primary sex narrative is from the 1960s, sexual revolution, along with the birth control pill. Whatever does, whatever feels good, do it. There are fewer and fewer sexual boundaries in our culture. Sex is permissible, applauded in almost every imaginable expression. And there's been just a wide open green light in our culture. Our culture encourages us to sexual experimentation. But this is misguided, and it is destructive. And we are beginning increasingly as a culture to see the devastation of this. God's story of human sexuality is one where he cherishes it so much as he puts moral boundaries around it. God gave us boundaries around sex not to deprive us of some freedom or pleasure but to help us flourish as individuals and as a society. And don't ever be deceived that human sexuality is just a private thing. It is private, but it's more than that. Our sexuality has profound social implications. There is just so much confusion today around this. So let me just frame some boundaries from God's story. What are God's boundaries for sex? Some of us have crossed the boundary of pornography. Whether it's looking at a porn site on our computer or reading pages of a romance novel like Shades of Grey, do not kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Pornography is a destructive thing. We know this from neuroscience, let alone the Bible. It rewires your brain and how you relate to others and how you see the world. And it keeps you from ever experiencing true intimacy. I'd say as your pastor, I have cried, I have prayed with so many whose lives are so, and marriages are so scarred and ravaged with it. So stay away from it. And if you are caught up in it, talk to me or one of the staff, get help. Don't kid yourself. Pornography is extremely destructive. And it's deadly. Some of you here this morning are involved in premarital sex. Instead of calling it fornication, we often have sanitized it, haven't we? 
like being sexually active or hooking up. But by changing the name doesn't mean it changes the morality of it. It violates God's design boundaries. Yes, hooking up can be pleasurable for a time. I don't deny that. But it comes with bigger baggage, and it will set you up. I found a glimmer of encouragement of all places in the University of Kansas newspaper called the UDK. Just recently, it was sent to me. The title of the article by a student at KU is this, Hookups Normal, but Overhyped. A lot of hype out there, right? And the article goes on to describe, it's a woman, uh, woman student writing it, about the excitement of all the hookups, the sexual exploration, and then she says there is an ongoing regret so often of what people feel. If you are unmarried and having sex with someone, let me just encourage you to change, to embrace God's design, to find forgiveness in Christ, ask forgiveness of the other person. As a person interacts with so many people about the most private parts of their life, I repeatedly encounter a pattern in counseling married people. Those who avoid premarital sex and get that under control before they're married married, will have a much better sex life and intimacy in their marriage without a doubt. It's worth the wait. Some of you this morning are married and involved with someone sexually outside of your spouse, whether it's online or in person. You've been rationalizing your adultery. That's what it is. Thousands and thousands of ways you're probably lying to yourself, to your spouse, to others, in a web of deceit. And you may be telling yourself, well, I need to be happy. My wife, my husband does not meet my needs. I'm lonely. God wants me to be happy. But it's not an affair. It's adultery. And it violates God's design. So do you have the courage to come clean before God this morning? Do you have the courage to repent, to find God's gracious forgiveness, and to come clean with your spouse? Maybe this morning you're struggling with homosexual practices or a homosexual relationship. You may be rationalizing your gay or lesbian relationship as God has made me this way. I hear that a lot. But like other sexual sin, repentance is needed and there's hope and healing available. True intimacy, wholeness, and purpose is found in the person of Christ. Homosexual practice and gay marriage are outside the boundaries of God's design according to Holy Scripture. While there's no room for any of us to throw stones at each other, there's also no room for rationalizing sin, whatever it is. And the good news is that there's always room for healing and hope in Christ and his glorious gospel. So let's find healing and hope wherever we are this morning. A book I want to recommend to you is written by Syracuse University professor, tenured professor, Rosaria Butterfield, Dr. Butterfield. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a short book that describes her journey and how the gospel has transformed her life and her sexual practices and boundaries. She points us to the way that the greatest lover of your soul is Jesus Christ, not the loving arms of a man or woman. 
Arms of fantasy are empty, y'all. Reality is found in Christ. Jesus paid the ultimate price by shedding his atoning blood as a sacrifice for every sin, including every sexual sin on that cross. And he offers to you and me forgiveness and a new life and to take our sins as far as the east is from the west, past, present, and future. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel leads all of us to the one whose intimacy we so deeply long for. I love the great hymn of hope. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he says, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, I know many of us are in different stages of life. So let me address some of those stages of life as we begin to wrap up the message. I see some kids here this morning. I am glad you're here. I know you hear a lot about sex these days. TV, school, kids, friends. But I want to encourage you to listen to your parents and sort through all the information you're hearing. The good news is you're not alone. It's confusing, all the messages you're hearing. Your parents love you so much and they want to keep you safe and healthy. And if you are a Christian, if you've embraced Christ, you have the Holy Spirit to guide you as a young person to be able to discern when you're at a friend's house when a movie comes on that's not appropriate and to leave or to see something on TV and to turn and walk out of the room. Choose what is right when you're young. And it will bless you for the rest of your life. Moms and dads, talk to your kids about sex. The world around them is constantly talking to them. Do it in an age-appropriate way, of course. But talk with them. Give them God's story of sexuality. Pray for them. And be there for them, whether they're 5 or 15. And be a safe place to talk about sexual brokenness. If you're a teenager, young adult this morning, and I see some teenagers here this morning, I want to tell you, first of all, as a pastor, I know what it's like to be a teenager and having hormones racing through your body. It's not easy. So don't dismiss me. I know how hard it was, especially when I was younger. But you can follow God's design. It will bless your marriage, your future. It will eliminate regrets. And it will teach you self-control. It will bless you if you get married when you're married. Because you need self-control, not only before you're married, but after you're married. That's the fallen human heart. Choose your friends carefully, your closest friends, and wait for God's best. And if you've blown it in this area, you can be whole again. Seek God's forgiveness. Become accountable. Get involved with our youth group. Talk to a youth pastor. Talk to one of us. Some people who come alongside you. If you're single this morning and older, whether you've never been married or You've been married. The first thing to gather, I think, is that your identity is in Christ. Find your worth in Christ. Pursue marriage if God has put that in your heart, but do not make marriage an idol. 
because marriage, no matter how good it is, will never satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. It was never designed to. Not even a good marriage will satisfy you. Oswald Chambers, one of my uh, favorite mystical writers for the 20th century, says this. Lust in its highest and lowest form simply means I seek for a creature to give me what God alone can give. Let me say that again. Lust in its highest and lowest form simply means I seek from a creature to give me what God alone can give. If you're single, it's a wonderful calling. Immerse yourself in spiritual friendships, grow spiritually, be involved in the church community. It's a wonderful family. If you're married this morning, again, take those phantoms of disappointment and fantasies of disillusionment and take them and drop them right at the cross. Because many of us in marriage have fantasies and disillusionments and phantoms that no spouse can ever meet. And we're resentful, bitter, because we've crafted an imaginary world that nobody can meet. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Take time to nurture your marriage. And recognize that every marriage... Every marriage goes through mountaintops and valleys. I've been married for 31 years. I know that. I didn't know that when I was married five years. Know there are sexual seasons in your marriage. Sweetness in every season if you look for it and nurture it. Now, in hearing God's design, I've tried to be as clear as I can. God's plan for sex. You may be sensing this morning you need to make some big changes in your life. Having a sex life that honors God is worth it. Your application and response this morning may be breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. It may be coming clean with a spouse. Some secrets you've been hiding. It may be changing the wardrobe in your closet. It entices others to sexual lust because it's so immodest. I don't know what it is. God knows. But God will help you. He's there for you. In Psalm 34, 18, I love this verse. I'd love to caress your soul with it this morning, wherever you are. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Sexual intimacy, Solomon tells us, is a beautiful gift that points to a beautiful God and a beautiful future. A day yet future is coming. Y'all, when the deepest longings to be fully known and to fully know will be realized. But in this time between, in this time of waiting, the question is, whose arms are you running to? Only the greatest lover of your souls will ever meet the deepest longings of your heart. So will you join me this morning in running to him. Will you run to him? He awaits with loving and nail-scarred hands and wide-open arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and good. So patient with all of us. We confess we are a broken people. 
We so often run to the empty arms of fantasies, of pornography, of promiscuity, of adultery. Somehow convincing ourselves we'll find true satisfaction. Yet the pleasure is fleeting and the emptiness is haunting. So we want to run to your arms. Find forgiveness and grace and the riches of your love, for there will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace.